Let's read the scriptures this morning in Romans. Romans chapter 10. Last month after I accepted your call and I was contemplating what to preach for my inaugural sermon, after thinking of a few different passages, the Lord led my mind to this one, which I love. It's a beautiful passage, very memorable passage, and it shows us the necessity and the beauty of the preaching of the gospel, so fitting for this occasion. Let's read the entire chapter together. Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring, that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went up into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. We read the word of God that far, and I call your attention to verses 14 and 15. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of the gospel that comes to you this morning, as we find it in the passage that we read, can be said in these words, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how will you call upon the name of the Lord if you have never believed in him? And how will you believe in him if you have never heard him? And how will you hear him without a preacher? And how shall anyone preach to you unless he has been sent to you? Those rhetorical questions are found in a passage of this epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapters 9 through 11, in which the apostle is wrestling with and reflecting upon the sad fact that many of his kinsmen, his countrymen, according to the flesh, the Jews, were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And they went about to establish their own righteousness. And they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Because, as the apostle indicates, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. But many of the Jews did not believe in Jesus. They rejected him as the Christ. And the apostle now reflects upon that sad reality. He could wish, and his heart's desire was that they would be saved. But many of them did not believe in the Messiah, and they were not saved. But in his reflection upon that, the Apostle reminds the Roman Christians and himself that God is not merely pleased to save the Jews, but God has determined and promised to save Jews and Gentiles. There is no difference now in the new dispensation, he reminds them, between the Jew and the Gentile. But now will come to pass what was prophesied long ago by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2 that whosoever believes and calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, whether he is a Jew or whether he is a Gentile. For the same Lord, Paul says, who is rich upon all who call upon him throughout the nations of the Jews and the Gentiles, that same Lord, that one Lord, is rich to save all those who call upon his name. That's verse 12. And then he writes the promise of the gospel from Joel that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then the apostle Paul, like a blacksmith, linking together the loops of a solid iron chain that cannot be broken, asks the rhetorical questions of our text, linking them together in close succession 
forming his logical argument through rhetorical questions. And if you ask, why does he ask rhetorical questions to which we know the answer? The answer to that is that this is the most beautiful and memorable way to teach a lofty truth. Indeed, I imagine that many of you already know the text by memory. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace. By means of those questions, the apostle means to teach us a lofty truth. And this is the lofty truth, that God is pleased to use preachers and preaching to work faith in the hearts of his people throughout all the nations of the world. And by working that faith to save them. I preach this text this morning to you on this occasion of my inaugural sermon as your newly installed pastor. The text before us gives to me my mandate as a preacher. My mandate is to run to you and to preach to you the gospel of peace and the glad tidings of good things. And you as a congregation must expect nothing more, nothing less than essentially this, that your pastor runs to you to bring to you the gospel of peace and the glad tidings of salvation. And God will be pleased in that way to work faith in your hearts and the hearts of your children and perhaps even the hearts of his elect people around us and outside of our church, Jews and Gentiles, that his people might be saved. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, The Necessity and Beauty of Gospel Preaching. Notice, first of all, the question, how shall any believe? In the second place, how shall any hear? And finally, how beautiful the feet. The promise of the gospel that the apostle preaches in the text or in the context is this, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then he asks the first in his chain of rhetorical questions, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Calling upon the name of the Lord is crying out to him for salvation. Calling upon the name of the Lord is coming to him in prayer and saying to him, Lord, save me. Save me from my sin. Save me from death and hell. Save me from all my enemies and from everlasting damnation. Save me, Lord. But the apostle asks, how shall anyone call upon him in whom he has not believed? Indeed, no one will call upon the Lord unless he first believes in the Lord. If he does not believe in the Lord, he will not call upon the Lord. Rather, he will look to himself for salvation. He will look to man for salvation. He will look to the creature for salvation. He will look to his idols for salvation. But he will not call upon the name of the Lord. Only those 
who have been given the gift of faith will call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. But how shall anyone believe in him whom he has not heard? Believing in the Lord is faith. Believing in the Lord is not only a certain knowledge of the Lord in my mind, but believing in the Lord is also an assured confidence in the Lord in my heart. Believing in the Lord means that I don't trust in myself. Believing in the Lord means that I recognize that I am not able to save myself, that I am a sinner that I am hopeless in myself, I'm powerless in myself, I can't save myself if all of my hope is in myself and my works and my worth and my abilities and my will, then I'm lost. Believing in the Lord means that I look to the Lord, I embrace the Lord, I trust in the Lord with all my heart as my righteousness, as my salvation, as my hope for this life and the life to come. That's believing, and that's faith. God is pleased to save his people by faith, by faith alone. But how shall anyone believe in him whom they have not heard? As the King James translation puts it, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, of whom. And that's true, too. That's very true. It is very true that no one can or will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if they have never heard of him, if they have never heard about him, and therefore, if they know nothing about him. That's true. That's not the whole meaning of the text. That's not even the main meaning of the text, as we will see in a moment. But that is true. How shall anyone believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if he has never heard of him? There are millions of people who have been born, who have lived, and who have died, and who have never heard of Jesus. There are heathens in the past, in the present, and in the future who have never heard of Jesus. They have never heard of him. They don't know anything about him. They have never read the Bible. They have never heard the preaching of the Bible. And therefore, they don't know anything about him. And if they have never heard of him, how shall they believe in him? And if they do not believe in him, how shall they be saved? They shall not be saved. They shall perish. Even though they have never heard of him, it is true that it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment, for them of Sodom and Gomorrah, for them in the deep parts of Africa or Asia who have never heard of him, it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for those of Capernaum and Bethsaida who not only heard of him but who heard him. It will be more tolerable for them than for those who have heard much about Jesus Christ, but who don't believe in him. Nevertheless, though it will be more tolerable for them, they will perish, having not heard of him. They will perish because although they've never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have heard the voice of God in creation. 
They have heard and they have seen about God in the general revelation. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. How shall anyone believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who has not heard of him? Those who have not heard the gospel of peace and the glad tidings of good things, if they have never heard that gospel, and the word gospel in the text means good news, it means glad tidings, it refers to a message which gives gladness and joy, a message of good things. The gospel is the message which proclaims the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the message which proclaims who Jesus of Nazareth is, who he is as the eternal Son of God come down into this world, into our flesh, taken upon himself, our human nature, body, and soul, who suffered and died on the cross and rose from the dead and went up into heaven and sits at God's right hand, who is our righteousness and salvation. That's the gospel. It is the gospel that he came into the world to save sinners, to seek and to save the lost, to gather to himself Jews and Gentiles, people from all the nations. And if a man has never heard that gospel, how shall he believe in this Lord Jesus Christ? How shall he believe in him? If he has never heard the gospel of peace, the apostle defines it as the gospel of peace. If a man has never heard about the peace that comes in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, if he has never heard that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has reconciled us to God so that now there is peace between me and God through the righteousness and the forgiveness of my sins. How shall anyone believe in him who has never heard about the peace that he brings here in the church between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, the peace in Jerusalem, the peace between Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, male and female? How shall anyone believe if he has never heard of the peace that Jesus gives in the soul of the Christian? in the midst of all the circumstances and trials of life and the peace that he holds out to us and promises to us in a world to come, that in the new heavens and the new earth there will be peace between the wolf and the lamb, between the lion and the kid. How shall anyone believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if he has never heard the glad tidings of the good things that Jesus Christ has accomplished through his death and through his resurrection from the dead as the firstborn, the first begotten of the dead, so that now he is the Lord of life who gives to us eternal life, who bestows upon us regeneration and sanctification and everlasting life in body and soul in a world to come who richly bestows upon us many, many good things. How shall anyone believe if he has not heard of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all true. But that's not the whole truth of that question in verse 14. How shall they believe in him? The question literally in the Greek is this. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? That little word of is not there in the original language. But rather, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? They have not heard him. If they have not heard him, how will they believe in him? That's the question. They can't, and they won't. You know, there are also many, many people throughout history who have heard a lot about Jesus, and they know a lot about Jesus, but they haven't heard him, and they don't know him. They haven't truly heard him in their heart. They haven't heard his voice, the voice of the shepherd who calls out to his sheep and they hear him and they know his voice and they follow him. There are many, many people who have never heard him and they too do not believe and they are not saved. Think of an illustration. How shall a man or a woman who has a heart problem, trust a doctor whom he has never met and never heard. He has a heart problem. He needs heart surgery or he is going to die. How will he trust a physician whom he has never met, whom he has never heard, whom he has never seen? Will he? Will he trust a man to cut open his chest, to break his ribs, and to do surgery on his heart, if he has only learned about that man through the internet, if he has only heard about that man through his resume, but he has never actually heard the voice of the doctor speaking to him? In this day and age, maybe one would, maybe one would trust a doctor to cut open his chest and do surgery on his heart without ever having heard his voice. Maybe although probably not likely. But that's not the case in the spiritual realm. No one can or does or will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who has not heard him, who has not heard his voice. Why is that? Why is it that no one believes in him and no one can believe in him who has not heard him? The reason is that the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ is the real spiritual power that alone can give and work faith in the hearts of sinners. There is no other power. That power does not lie within us. That power is not in our free will. That power is in the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his word. And that's why a man must hear him. How can anyone believe in him if he doesn't Hear him. That voice of the Lord is the same voice that calls into being the things that are not. It's the same voice that in the beginning 
called and said, let there be light, and there was light. That same voice that calls out and says, let there be life in the heart of this dead sinner, and there is life. It is that mighty, powerful voice of the Lord that alone is able to regenerate a dead heart and soften a hard heart and give the gift of faith. How shall I believe in him if I haven't heard him speak to me personally and say to me, I love you. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am your Savior. I came into this world to save you because of my love for you. I came into this world to suffer for you, to die for you, to die on the cross for you, to enter into the depths of hell for you and endure God's wrath for you. How can anyone believe who doesn't hear the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to me, saying, come to me, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe on me, and you will be saved. I am your righteousness. Don't be afraid. I am your salvation. And how shall anyone not believe in him who has heard him? How shall anyone who has heard that voice speak to his heart not believe? Impossible. Because the man or the woman who hears that voice speak to his heart is irresistibly drawn to him. That's a grace that cannot be resisted, that cannot be rejected. The mighty voice of Christ softens the heart that draws the mind and the soul, that gives the gift of faith. How shall any believe unless they hear him? But how shall any hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? That's the question that inevitably follows as the Apostle links together the chains of his argument, forging them together as an unbreakable bond. How shall anyone hear that voice without a preacher? They cannot, and they will not. There was a time when the children of God heard the voice of the Lord without a preacher. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, heard the voice of the Lord walking with him in the cool of the day. Abraham heard the voice of the Lord who came to him in the form of a man on the plains of Mamre. Jacob heard the voice of the Lord in his dream at Bethel when he saw the angels ascending and descending on a ladder. Daniel heard the voice of the Lord. Many saints heard the voice of the Lord. Moses heard the voice of the Lord in the burning bush. The disciples heard the voice of the Lord. When the Lord came into this world and took on human flesh and blood and took on a human tongue and mouth and vocal cords, and when the Lord spoke to them, 
from a human body, they heard the voice of the Lord without a preacher. And when he hung up there on the cross and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is finished. Many heard him. But when he ascended up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God, now the question must be asked, how shall anyone hear without a preacher? Without a preacher, they cannot and they will not. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast? And as he's riding home to Ethiopia in his chariot, he has before him the scroll of Isaiah 53, and he's reading there the word of the Lord. But although he is reading the word of the Lord, He's not hearing the voice of the Lord. And the Lord sent a preacher to him in the person of Philip. And Philip walked up beside him and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I understand unless someone explain it to me? And so Philip got up into the chariot with him. And Philip began at that same scripture and preached Jesus to him. And when the Ethiopian eunuch heard the preaching of Jesus, he said, I want to be baptized. Stop the chariot. I need to be baptized. May I be baptized? And Philip said to him, Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If you believe that, then you may. And he said, I believe. How is that that he believed? Because he heard the voice of the Lord through the preacher. What is a preacher? A preacher is a herald of the exalted Lord. A messenger. In the days of the apostles, they did not have telephones, telegraphs, internet. To send a message, you had to send a herald, a messenger, with that message, either memorized or written on a scroll. A herald was a man who carried a message from his lord, from his king, whether memorized or on a scroll, an official message from the king. He received it from the king, his lord. And having received that message, he ran with his feet. He ran to the next town. He ran to the next town and the next town. And when he arrived in the town, he stood up in the middle of the town. He gathered the people around. He unrolled his scroll and he announced the message of the king. This is the message of the king. And when he read or recited that message, he did so with all the boldness and the courage of a man who has been clothed with authority from the king. That's a herald. And that message of the king 
would be an announcement to the people of what the king has done, what he has accomplished, what he promises to do, and what he summons them to do, what he calls them to do. Perhaps he summons them to battle, or perhaps he announces the victory in the battle. And so the herald comes and announces the message of the king. What is a preacher? A preacher is a herald of Jesus Christ. A preacher is a man who carries the gospel of peace, the glad tidings of good things that he has heard and received from his Lord. He carries that message because he has found that message in the scriptures. He has worked with the scriptures, having been trained. He has worked in the original languages of the scriptures and read the scripture message. And he has worked with that message so that he might understand the meaning of the words in the text and the relationships between the concepts in the text. What is the text saying? What does the text mean? What is the message of the king in the text? And having uncovered it and having come to understand it and having come to set it down in a careful way in his sermon, he takes that message in his mind, in his heart, and on his page, and he runs with it. He runs with it to announce that message to the church, to the people of God, and to the world. He runs with all his might, with all his energy and joy and eagerness to bring this urgent message from the king. And when he stands on his feet before the audience, he announces that message with all the boldness of one who knows he has received authority from the king of kings. And no longer as a man, a mere man, but as one who has been given authority from the king. And the apostle now asks, how shall any hear the voice of the king without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? There, too, he links together his chain and adds another important element to his message in the text. How shall they preach except they be sent? They cannot. They may not. They do not. Imagine for a moment a man, a servant of the king, standing in the court of the king, and he listens as the king gives the message to the herald, the official herald. The servant listens, and he overhears that message so that he too knows the message. But the king has not sent him to bring that message, and yet he decides and takes it upon himself that he will run with that message. He will run from town to town, and he will stand up in the city square and announce the message of the king. The message might be true. It might truly be the message of the king. But he has not been sent to speak that message 
And therefore, although the message may be good and true, and even though that man may have good intentions even, he acts wrongly when he attempts to proclaim the message of the king. When we were in the Philippines these past four to five years, I discovered that there were many men there doing that very thing. Most of them were Arminians who did not have an understanding of this, but some of them were reformed. Arminians in their past and now reformed. And when I say reformed, I mean they understood the doctrines of Calvinism. They understood, loved, and believed the reformed truths of eternal predestination, total depravity, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints. And in their eagerness and love for that truth, they wanted to go out, they wanted to run forth and proclaim everywhere and spread the news of the truth of the gospel. But they were not sent. I suppose that Probably they believed they were sent because they had an erroneous notion about sending that the king sends all Christians to preach the gospel of peace and to bring the glad tidings of good things. But that is not true. In the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus Christ sent his apostles as representing the church to preach the gospel in all nations. And we look through the book of Acts and we find again and again that men were specially called and separated and ordained by the laying on of hands and then sent with the mandate to preach. But not all Christians were given that mandate. Although we do find also in the book of Acts that Christians were forced to run and to spread through persecution, and as they ran, we even read that they preached. And if you look at the original word there, it's not the same as the word here in our text, which means to herald. But it does indicate that all Christians do have a calling to witness, to spread the gospel through their personal witness, but that's not the same as preaching. They are not sent to preach as an official herald of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the boldness of one who knows himself to have been given authority from Christ. Christ sends certain men, certain men upon whose heart he places a burden so that we find in the scriptures many times the prophets speak of the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And that burden of the Lord is the burden that he places upon the man whom he has selected to send. And that man cannot shake off that burden. As he carries that burden, he knows, he becomes convinced he must pursue the ministry. And so he applies at the seminary. He seeks to learn, to grow, to train, to prepare, to be a faithful herald of the good news. But that's not all. Finally, he is called to the church. 
The Lord calls and sends these heralds through the church who issues a call to a man. Come over. Help us. Preach that gospel of peace to us and to those around us. And that man understands and is convinced that he is called and sent by the Lord himself through that church. And he runs to bring that message to them. When that man, who has been duly and lawfully called and sent by the Lord himself, internally and externally through the church, when he comes and stands and preaches, then we hear Christ, Christ himself. And when we hear Christ, those who are ordained to eternal life believe. Those who are not stumble and fall. And whosoever believes, the elect, they call upon the name of the Lord. They cry out to him, Lord, save me. Save me from my sins. And receiving the assurance of their salvation through the preaching, they go forth into the world and they echo. They echo the preaching that they heard in the church to all those around them. How beautiful then are the feet. How beautiful are the feet, the apostle says, of those who bring the gospel of peace and the glad tidings of good things. In this, the apostle is quoting the Old Testament. Notice he says in verse 15, as it is written, as it is written, First of all, in Isaiah 52, verse 7, where the prophet Isaiah said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And again, Nahum 1, verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. How beautiful are the feet. The beauty of those feet is not the beauty of the preacher himself. It's not his fine clothing, his eloquent speech, his charming personality, the preacher himself may or may not be impressive in stature, in appearance, in speech, in dress, in personality. The Apostle Paul, did he have beautiful feet? The Apostle Paul says about himself that he preached in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And some of the Corinthians who read his epistles said his epistles are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. 
The beauty of these feet is not the beauty of the preacher himself. In fact, oh, how ugly are the feet of those who bring another gospel. Even though that man may be impressive in stature, impressive and charming and eloquent in speech, but how ugly, how repulsive are those feet which preach lies and spread heresies and false doctrines and preach another Christ and preach salvation by our own works and by our own righteousness and encourage men to ignore the righteousness of God and to go about to establish their own righteousness. How ugly are the feet that preach such things. We might add, too, how horrible, how terrible are the feet of those who do not preach the gospel of peace, but who preach the gospel, but they do so in such a manner that they divide the church, who preach the gospel, but who preach it in such a way that they stir up strife in the church, schism in the church. How horrible are the feet that divide the body of Christ for which he died to bring peace. How horrible are the feet of those who spread suspicion among brothers and sisters and hatred among believers and who use the pulpit to divide the church. How beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel of peace. Peace between us and God, which also brings peace among ourselves and peace within ourselves and the hope of peace in the world come. How beautiful are those feet. Not because that preacher's feet, not because that preacher is beautiful in himself, but because the message which he brings, the message which he is swift to bring, the message which he is eager to bring so that he runs with his feet to bring it, the message, how beautiful are the feet because of the message that he brings. Do you believe that? Do you say that too? Do you join your voice to the apostle and to Nahum and to Isaiah before him as they exclaimed, how beautiful are those feet because of the message? When you hear that message, does your heart thrill with joy to hear the beautiful sound of those who have been sent by heaven to preach the glad tidings so that you listen to that message with an undivided heart, not thinking about the things of the week to come or the week past, but you listen to that message. It's a beautiful thing. It's a precious thing, more precious to you than gold, silver. And you listen in such a way 
that you are eager to receive the truth of the gospel. Not in a suspicious way in which you are looking for and expecting to hear errors. But in such a way that you are looking for and expecting to hear the gospel of peace. That's not to say that if and when we hear errors, that minister who is a mere man ought to be rebuked and ought to repent and apologize for his errors. But it's to say that when we come to hear the preaching, we're coming because it's a beautiful message. We want to hear it. We know that it's the message of salvation. May God give us those ears to hear and those eyes to see. And as we go forward together as pastor and congregation now, may God give to me carefulness and wisdom to discern the message from the scriptures, to preach it carefully, not in a way that's constantly slipping into erroneous statements, but carefully and wisely. That's my prayer for myself. And may God give to you discerning ears and a love and appreciation for that message and an eagerness and a readiness to hear it from week to week. And may God preserve us together from wolves who would come in either to bring heresy or schism. May God preserve us in peace and in the blessed unity that's in Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks for that beautiful gospel of peace. We understand we are not worthy of it. Thou hast not chosen to send it to us because we have made ourselves to differ from other men. But we acknowledge thy grace in electing us from before the foundation of the world and also determining to give unto us the means of grace in the preaching of the good news. So we do pray for our pastor as he goes forward, laboring in the scriptures, he might do so with discernment, carefulness, and wisdom to bring unto us only those blessed good tidings. And may thou give unto us listening ears that we might hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches with eagerness and joy and thankfulness, that we might together say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's now open.